True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is your Spotlight Minisode for the week. In Spotlight Minisodes, we discuss cases that have been in the media recently, as well as related topics. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Janine Gerby, Elsie, Hanley van Skalkveik, Tina Esklund, and Lindsay Liu for your support on Patreon, as well as Shaquille Shade for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. The first case I want to discuss today comes out of a place you would hardly expect such a heinous crime to occur in. Aranyaville is a small town situated on the banks of the Vilcha River in the Free State province of South Africa. It's a town so small that it only warrants five lines of description on Wikipedia, and a Google search for it brings up nothing but adverts for fishing spots. In the last week, though, two Aranyaville residents were murdered in a crime so vicious it completely belies the quiet and sedate setting. The bodies of 80-year-old Johannes van Feeren and his 58-year-old daughter, Dorothea van Staden, were discovered this past week at their home in Aranyaville. The discovery was made after Dorothea's husband called the house several times throughout the day and was unable to reach his wife or his father-in-law. He sent a relative that lived nearby to check on them, and they stumbled upon the gruesome scene. Johannes van Feeren was found in the courtyard of the property, having succumbed to multiple stab wounds, while Dorothea was found in the garage with multiple head and body injuries. The house had been ransacked and several television sets and computer screens were missing. 
Dorothea's 36-year-old daughter, that woman's husband and their 10-year-old child, who also lived in the house, were missing. Concerned for the safety of the trio, considering the horrific scene in their home, police put out an alert for their gold BMW. Several hours later, and almost 1,000 kilometres away from Uranjeville, police officers on the N2 near Kucha in the Eastern Cape spotted the vehicle. Officers pulled the vehicle over and found Dorothea van Staden's daughter, her 34-year-old husband, and their 10-year-old child in the vehicle. Also in the car were all of the stolen items from the Van Feren home. Police arrested the couple on charges of murder and house robbery. Their child was taken to a place of safety. The couple cannot be named until they appear in Heilbronn Magistrates' Court in the Free State for the first time. The couple had been fleeing to Jutenhaag when they were arrested. I'll be following this case with interest as, although we know that murders are always most likely to be committed by someone known to the victim, family murders such as this, in which the accused and her husband are alleged to have killed her own elderly grandfather and mother, always blow my mind, especially since the motive appears to have simply been financial. I guess if the accused also lived in the house, they could argue that those items belonged to them, but that remains to be seen. One of the saddest parts of this case is the fact that a 10-year-old child was likely present when whatever happened in Aranyaville happened, and then she was bundled into a car and drove for 10 hours, likely having no idea what the heck was happening, and then went through the trauma of being pulled over by police and watching her parents get arrested. Then she had to be sent to live with complete strangers in a safe house. I cannot even imagine how confused and scared that child must be, and I really hope that there are family members who are able to care for her while her parents answer the charges before them. In another case, this time in the Western Cape, which came to its conclusion this week, 40-year-old Melvin Falkvane was convicted and sentenced to 20 years imprisonment for the murder of one-year-old Orderick Lucas. The case, though, has not been cut and dry, and many other elements and points of conversation have been raised around the child's life and death. In what has become a picture synonymous with suffering, a photograph of Orderick shows him looking blankly at the person taking the picture. The child's eyes are filled with tears, and his nose is running unabated down his upper lip. The child's eyes are sunken in, and he looks exhausted. This image would bring into question the lack of care that Audric received in his short life. Audric and his twin brothers had been removed from the care of their mother, Davidine Lucas, after it was found that Audric's arm had been intentionally broken. Davidine was a drug user, and it's alleged that she would regularly forget in whose care she'd left her children. Audric and his siblings had been placed into the care of their maternal grandmother, but on the day that he is believed to have gone missing, the grandmother sent the three children to their mother as she was having her birthday party. 
This action would have been in, in contravention of the court order, which gave her guardianship over the children, and forbade the children to be in the care of Davidine. It is actually unclear when Audric went missing, as his mother and grandmother only reported him missing four days after he was last seen. Ten days later, the child's body was found by a group of children whose ball had fallen into a drain. When the children went to retrieve their toy, they discovered the severely decomposed body. Audric's body was in such a decomposed condition that it was impossible to determine how he had died, but marks around his neck seemed to indicate he may have been strangled. Audric's mother could not initially remember who she had last given her child to. She initially named one of her friends, but when police determined the child had not been there, she then named Melvin Falkvane. Falkvane admitted that he had taken the child from Davidine's care during that time because she'd been assaulted in a mob attack after she'd stolen a cell phone, but he maintained that he'd returned the child to Davidine and he had no idea what had happened after that. Despite his conviction, Falkvane maintains his innocence. In August, the state announced that it may pursue charges against Davidine Lucas and her mother for their role in Orderick's death. The young child's medical records showed that in the 22 months that he was alive, he had been treated for malnutrition, sores on his genitals and mouth, some of which had gone septic, the broken arm, and he was found to have severely damaged teeth. His mother would claim that Falkvane had broken her son's arm and extracted his teeth with pliers, but Falkvane says that both of these injuries were inflicted by the child's mother. It is unknown whether the state will proceed with charges against the two women, but in handing down her sentence to Falkvane, Judge Nolundi Nyati berated the community that Audric lived in for allowing the child to have such a miserable life and death. It's alleged that Davidine's neglect and abuse of her children was well known in the community, and yet no one had ever reported this. The children were only removed after doctors alerted authorities about Audric's broken arm. It's also alleged that when it became known that Audric was missing, members of the community joked that Davidine had, quote, misplaced her child again, end quote. While in cases like this I would usually have significant empathy for the family left behind, I really struggle to feel that way for Audric's mother, and even his grandmother, to be honest. While I only have the details that the press has published, and I am well aware that it is easy to judge from a position of privilege, I feel like Audric was horribly failed by these people. His mother was clearly struggling with substance addiction, but there are many, many families that are poor and living with substance abuse issues and do not lose their child for four days before reporting him missing. In a photograph in the media, Audric's mother and grandmother sit on a couch in the older woman's home. The grandmother holds a tiny pair of shoes that still have the price tag on them, 
and the mother has a pack of unopened, disposable diapers on her lap. The grandmother looks into the camera with a small smile on her face, but the mother looks off into the distance. She is thin, and her collarbone protrudes from her neck. She really doesn't look like she wants to be there. The irony of this photograph is that I assume it's meant to show how Audric had things purchased for him that would indicate some level of care. But diapers and a pair of shoes he clearly never wore did nothing to help him from 22 months of neglect, malnutrition and injury. Those things did nothing to help him when he lay in a drain for 10 days, four of which no one was even looking for him. I am not a mother, and I never will be one, so I cannot speak to the difficulties of raising children from an emotional, physical or financial perspective. But I hope you'll forgive me if I admit that I find it very difficult to have empathy for Audric's mother. But that doesn't help him either. My anger and outrage is useless now, and all I'm left with is the question, if Audric was my neighbour's child, would I have done something? If he was your neighbour's child, would you? The last case I want to discuss today sadly also involves the murder of a child, but in this case, the child's mother was a victim too. In the last week of September, it was announced that four men had escaped custody in Limpopo. Stanley Chitea, Dexter Tinashe, Joseph Tlondwane and Mohamed Nasi were being held in the awaiting trial section of a prison when they allegedly soared through the bars and exited through an unlocked steel door. They then entered the exercise area and escaped through the roof from there. The first three escapees I mentioned were being held on charges of housebreaking, robbery and rape, but Mohammed Nasir was waiting to answer to two murder charges. In January this year, Mohammed Nasir booked into a lodge with his wife, Chantal Ash, and their eight-month-old baby, Tazneem. The family had only paid for one night's accommodation, but had not checked out the next day. On the day after they were supposed to check out, cleaners entered the room to prepare it for the next booking. What the cleaners found, I am certain, will be etched in their memories forever. Chantal Ash and baby Tazneem were both deceased. Both had their hands tied behind their backs and appeared to have been strangled. Mohammed Nasir was nowhere to be found. A manhunt ensued for the man, and he was arrested in Johannesburg a few days later. Nasir was charged with the murders of his wife and child, and denied bail. And now, he is once again on the run. Nasir is a Bangladesh national, and authorities fear that he may try to flee back to his home country. Chantal Ash was just 20 years old when she was murdered. She had known Mohammed for five years after meeting him at the shop he ran in her hometown. 
Her mother says that she'd seen how much her daughter loved Mohammed, and she'd grown to love him like a son too. When Chantal announced that she was pregnant, her mother Annie was a bit shocked as the girl was so young. But by the time Tasneem arrived, everyone was in love with the beaming baby. Soon after, Mohammed asked Annie for permission to marry Chantal, and then the very same day, Annie received news that the couple had married. Annie was once again taken aback that she hadn't been given the opportunity to attend the wedding, but Chantal explained that it was a small ceremony with just a few friends. A few days before Chantal and Tasneem were murdered, the woman texted her mother to say that she and Mohammed were arguing. That would be the last time she would hear from her daughter. Annie had attempted to get hold of her daughter during the time that she now knows she was already deceased. When she couldn't reach her, she phoned Mohammed. The man told her he didn't know where Chantal and Tasneem were. If Mohammed Nasir does manage to escape the country and flee to Bangladesh, he may well never stand trial for his crimes, as according to the website of the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development, we do not have an extradition treaty in place with Bangladesh, which means that the country does not have to return its citizen to South Africa for criminal charges. With international travel being as difficult as it is right now, I would hope that would mean Nasir has not been able to flee and that he's still within the borders of South Africa. If and when the man is recaptured, the trial will hopefully reveal the details around the two murders, but I have to say that just the details that have emerged recently scream controlling and abusive relationship. Chantal met Nasir when she was just 15 years old, and he was already an adult. While the strangely quick marriage could well just be a matter of following religious practice, as Chantal had fallen pregnant outside of marriage, the fact that her family was not given the opportunity to attend is concerning. The marriage was not just a joining of two people. Chantal had to convert to an entirely new faith system in order to marry Nasir, and while that's not uncommon, it's also certainly not a decision to be taken in a single day. I think the most horrific thing about this case is the detail that emerged that little Tasneem's tiny hands were tied behind her back when she was found. I cannot even comprehend why that would be necessary or how a father could do that to his baby girl, if that is indeed what happened. Muhammad Nasir needs to be located, and then his trial needs to be carried out quickly, so that this man does not have another opportunity to flee. If he is guilty of what he is charged with, he is a cold-blooded and terrifying human being, and society needs to be protected from him, before he prays on someone else. That, ladies and gentlemen, is your Spotlight Minisode for the week. If you enjoyed this Minisode, please subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. 
Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.